Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about Austen and romance. For this episode, we are absolutely thrilled to welcome our guest, B. Hodges Koch. B. is the author of the wonderful nonfiction book, Mad and Bad, Real Heroines of the Regency, as well as one of the owners of The Ripped Bodice, one of the only independent bookstores in the U.S. dedicated to romance. In addition to being a groundbreaking bookseller, B. graduated from Yale University with distinction as the last Renaissance Studies major and received an M.A. from NYU Steinhardt in costume history. Welcome, B. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Let's set the scene for for our episode a little bit. So since this one is a little bit different from our typical episodes in that we're not doing a deep dive into a specific scene from Austin, but rather talking about Austin and romance in general. So just to clarify, we're talking about romance in the love life happily ever after sense, not romance in like the romantic movement, Marianne's obsession with dead leaves kind of sense. So that's what we're up to this episode be part of why we wanted to have you on for this special Valentine's Day episode is that your book is such a great overview of these women of the Regency that many people are unfamiliar with. So I recommend it to anyone who's just interested in the time period. But as a huge historical romance reader myself, I especially enjoyed the connections you made between the lives of these women and the stories we see in romance novels. And you also connect that to Austen's novels. So we are hoping to delve into that today and talk to you about Austen and romance. I mean, as long as I've been reading Austen, I've been reading romance. There was no distinction for me as a baby reader. And it's so interesting now to like be a scholar and like think of all the differences that there are. But like when I was, I don't, I honestly can't remember the first time I read Austen, but I was reading it right along with Loretta Chase and Eloisa James and Julia Quinn and stuff. So why do you think the romances in Austen work, especially as somebody who was reading them, you know, side by side with these other romances? And along with that, we have to know which pairing of the couples is your favorite and why? <laughs> Emma, Pride and Prejudice, Lizzie, Darcy, Stan. It's almost impossible to find something better than that. And I think, yeah, reading them at the same time, I think just showed me that Austin is the queen of the trope and she gives us familiar pairings with a sparkling dash of something new and something unique to her. And I think the best romance novelists do that today. They give us enemies to lovers. They give us uh, only one bed. They they give us what, what we recognize, but then they also make it unique and make it their own. And that's what really works for me. And I think what has made Austin popular since she started publishing until today, truly with very little dip in popularity. It's just that quintessential feeling like I recognize the story behind this couple, but the way they're going to end up together is going to be fresh and exciting and new. And I think Darcy and Elizabeth are the perfect example of that. Truly, I I think every enemies to lovers has a hint of Darcy Lizzie in it. It's always been the blueprint. And it's interesting to me also because I did study uh, Tudor and Renaissance history earlier in my career. And a lot of people will say to me like, well, Romeo and Juliet is so romantic. Is it a romance? No, 
Right. And I just think that's such a distinction for me so clearly in like why I've imprinted on the couple of Lizzie and Darcy versus Hamlet and Ophelia or uh, Romeo and Juliet or any of the Shakespeare tragic loves. They don't end up together. It's not happy. And I think Austin understood in the early 19th century that that is what you most want for it to end happily and for people to reveal their truest selves in that happiness. Like, I think that's also why Lizzie and Darcy always works because you get to see this other side of Darcy through the way he loves Lizzie, through her eyes and the way he talks about her, the way he talks about her to other people. It humanizes him and, and makes you love him because he loves her. I don't think we would love Darcy without his love for Elizabeth. So sweet. (laughs) Without Lizzie calling him out on the things that she doesn't understand, that she thinks are intolerable, those sorts of things, without her calling him out and then him like directly saying, oh, I see what you're saying. Let me address that. I mean, if that's not true love, then I don't know what is. You know, when, when a person is willing to say, I see your point, I can address this. Let me show you, let me show you that I can be better. It's beautiful. And I think so you've nailed something quintessential for me. We talk a lot at the store and in general in romance about competency porn. And I think like Austin a lot of times is like a lot of the original like competency porn. So so I'm a noob. What what does that mean? Co- sure. My husband is a romance noob, but obviously very interested in what I do and wants to know all about it. So sometimes I'll say something and he's just like, I know the words in English you just said, <laughs> but the way you said them, what does it mean? So competency porn might be one of those. It's just the idea that someone being really good at their job or being really good as a person is really sexy. Mm. And especially, I think, for a lot of women, it's the opposite of, of the idea of like the man who can't kind of bumbling idiot, like the sitcom dad we see a lot. Competency porn is the opposite of that. It's like, you're not asking for emotional labor from your partner <laughs> that's okay. unnecessary. Okay. Yeah, You're doing things that isn't asked of you. And Darcy, I think, do- really does that. He shows his love for Lizzie by like trying to fix her problems and trying to fix her family's problems. She just see it can see it in his house, too, when she shows up and she's like, look at this well-run estate. Okay, okay. <laughs> exactly. Like, I'm not going to have to come in here and fix this man. He's already fixed. In some ways. Well, so, so Austen's novels are, are seen as many things, right? But they can definitely be char- characterized as a marriage plot or a courtship novel. So with something like Pride and Prejudice, obviously it being like the example, what do you think is Austen's primary role or an, an influence within the rise of romance as a genre? Like what, what's kind of her impact on why it's become kind of the powerhouse that it is? I wish I could answer that. I feel like I would make a million dollars if I could. <laughs> <laughs> People especially Hollywood, we, we do a lot of consulting and everyone wants to know why are you so obsessed with Austin? Why is everyone so obsessed with Austin? And why can we continue to adapt her? And people will still like flock to see it. I think her role in the modern romance novel is kind of impossible to almost put into words. She has truly given us so much from just the setting of the Regency, which the number of books that are still published in 2022 set between 1810 and 1820 in England, it's wild. It's really interesting. 
to consider in the whole world of publishing that we are still publishing this on just one decade. And I'm always out there banging the drum saying, please write historicals that are not Regency because I want to read them. But also please keep writing Regency. (laughs) I have read a Regency romance novel probably every week of my life since I was 12 years old. At some point over the week, I will find my way to a Regency romance novel and read it. I imprinted on it at a very early age. And to this day, when I think of romance, I do think of Regency pretty high up there in my my top associations. A lot of romance novels now are not courtship plots. They're not marriage plots. We have moved away from that in the contemporary romance novels. And even contemporary people writing Regency will sometimes kind of move away from that as well. But it's still a central love story and you're still looking for a happy ending, whatever it is. So if that's marriage in 1810, it might not be marriage in 2022, but the heart of it is still the same. And I I just don't think that that much has changed in what a reader is looking for when they're picking up a romance novel. So this is kind of a question that you ask already in your book and you see and you ask what about the regency continues to draw us in and why do you think it it seems like such fertile ground for romance why do you think we continue to return to austin and for many of us return to the historical romance and austin retellings and spin-offs why is that something that we just can't kind of get enough of i think it is the push and pull between the reality of that historical world and the rules and especially like the societal structure around marriage, the Ton and the Marriage Mart and Almax and all these things that we hear about. And then the reality of human nature, which is actually like to kind of buck up against those strictures. They had all these rules. They have all this structure on marriage, but people are still kind of, I don't know, going buck wild. I think the clothing of the Regency is like, something that brings so many people. I mean, I I honestly, it's, there's so many different things and maybe more so than like Tudor or Georgian or like another named, even Victorian named period in England. I feel like there are so many men and women who came out of that time period as like celebrities and who continue to be celebrities to this day. Austin, of course, being one of them. Well, something that was standing out to me while while you were discussing that is with Austin, we're talking about like, here's the structure, marriage for money and status is still 100% in play. But we have actually started to move out of arranged marriages and into kind of love matches. And like, so there's, it's opening up a lot of possibilities, but we're still having to fight against this kind of like, marriage as a system is so still problematic and broken. And so I think people don't necessarily tend to think of Austin as uber sexy. But I think she's still dealing with that. Like we're living in a time where marriage and marriage relationships are under a microscope. Do they even function societally at this point? And I think Austin explores that in some really interesting ways. And that's why, you know, the, the celebrity that you're talking about, B, and the other kind of just the chaos and, and sensuality and, and like tactility of the era kind of all relates back to some of those, those kind of concepts. Tactility is a perfect, it's such an alive world for a modern reader, I think, in this way that is really unique. I think partially because it's been adapted on film so many times. So we're very familiar with the look and feel of the Regency from these beloved movies and TV shows. But like the Tudor time period has been 
on the TV a lot. And it, it just, I don't know if it has the same universal appeal that the Regency seems to have. I think the Regency feels like a little bit more like alive with possibility. Like we're on the verge of something. In the moment in history, it kind of is. Like you are on the, on the moment of a lot of things changing. So you refer to Austen as the queen of the Regency novel and also point out that Austen and other writers over time included characters of color in their work. In Austen's case with Miss Lamb in her unfinished work, Sanditon. But a lot of Regency enthusiasts seem to cling to a historically inaccurate view of the time under this guise of wanting things to be, I'm using air quotes here, historically accurate. As we see whenever a period drama announces a diverse cast. So, so what are your thoughts on Austen as an access point for conversations about race, diversity, and colonialism in the context of the larger historical romance genre, you know, from, from its past and, and the way that we treat it currently? I mean, I think she, like almost any author of the time, is a perfect way to discuss the true truth of historical accuracy, which is that people of color were moving around the world and would have been populating the streets of England, London, even the small towns where many of Austin's works take place. It comes from such a white supremacist idea of the world that like people of color didn't exist and history. Now we have the opportunity to, as scholars now, to say that's actually not accurate or correct to say that there were no people of color in that time period. Certainly not accurate or correct to say that there were no people of color in the upper echelons of society. So we have the opportunity now to study things that we maybe have kind of pushed to the side as like, oh, that's just a one-off, that person is a one-off or that story is not widely applicable. I think we're realizing actually those stories are very widely applicable. I'm excited. I think Hollywood is absolutely like taking baby steps. <laughs> I don't want to give them too much credit, but we've certainly been seeing some exciting adaptations coming out that I think present a much more historically accurate view of what it might have looked like to walk into a ballroom or walk down the streets of Regency England. I think we're going to keep seeing more of that. And I think the conversation around um, historical accuracy, I think, maybe even moved beyond what I just said. And now we're into the point of like, we know that there were more people of color at the time period, and we need to do the work to find their stories. There's also a readership that's thirsty for these more diverse representations. Because, you know, if, you, if you've loved Regency romance for as, as long as, you know, as long as you've been a reader, but you've never had someone as the hero or heroine that reflects your background or what you know of the history and the period. You're thirsty for that. You, you want that. And I think just like the conversation with Hollywood, like the conversation around publishing in this is so complicated because there's so many levels to it. And like traditional publishing is one thing, but independent publishing and self-publishing authors have been at this a lot longer, I, th I think, to be honest. So people are always like, oh, I only know like a handful of historical romances that feature characters of color. And that's usually because they're looking at traditionally published romance novels. I just think there's so much more that's out there if you are willing to look at independent or self-published, which you certainly should because there are some phenomenal <laughs> historical romances with characters of color that are self or indie published. I just think the more we like come into the light as 
a full realized genre, which for a long time, these conversations were happening just in private. And it wasn't as respected. I mean, that is just simply the case. There was like a dark ages for romance where the literary community really treated us very poorly. But I'm also always trying to get people to like move away from the idea that someone isn't going to take you seriously because you like romance or you're writing romance. Because I just don't think that's true anymore. If someone treats you like that, then you are certainly well within your rights to say, what year are you living in? (laughs) Right, right. So along those lines, what would you say to people who either disparage Austin as a mere romance writer or who perhaps shy away from attaching that label to her? I think it's sad that we've been taught to like hate things that women love. And that's just a truth. And Austin in her time was, I think she had a little bit of that attitude, like, sorry for existing, but I'm going to write what I want to write. And I'm going to give a happy ending to the girl I want to give a happy ending to. And yeah, I think the idea that happiness is unimportant is like so upsetting. And that a happy ending means something isn't well written also deeply upsetting. I do not understand why we are allowing that to perpetuate, like just continue on. It's it's so interesting. Even my father, that was something that he held on to for so long. And I, I had to yank it from his hands. Like you can't have that anymore. You can't say that anymore. It's not true. And it's dumb. I understand why we are why we all think the way we think because it's so many years of <laughs> being told to think this way by media and and everything like i i understand where those impulses even in me come from but i think that we have to do the work and question ourselves a little bit like sooner not not let it get to the point where we're saying like oh no austin isn't a, is isn't writing romance i took a class called reading the historical romance novel that was taught by Lauren Willig, who writes The Pink Carnation. One of my all-time favorite series. Oh, that's amazing. I can't believe she taught that class. That's she great. She taught it with another romance novelist who goes by a couple of different names. Her name is Andrea DeRiff. She's been writing for a really long time. If you haven't read her books under Kara Elliott, I cannot recommend them more highly. It's, it's about a group of women and they're all friends and they're all smart and it's so good. And she actually was writing one of them when she was teaching the class. So it's dedicated to our class, which always makes oh. me like literally cry. <laughs> but that class changed my life and changed the way I talk about what I do and talk about why I love these books and talk about Austin in relation to romance. And it was so powerful in making me re-examine a lot of the things I had thought for so long about these books and as a lesser form of literature. And even Austin as a lesser form of literature compared to her male counterparts or, and what they really like taught me was that happiness is important. Love is important. These are universal themes that people want to read about that reveal the truth of a human in a way that almost nothing else does. And people who write romance well are artists, truly. And geniuses, because they are able to take something that is so familiar and something that literally everyone experiences in some way, maybe not for themselves, but they see it on TV They and they make it fresh and they make you want to keep turning the page and they make you want to keep coming back. Austin has made us 
keep reading her books for hundreds of years. We're still here. I mean, she's a genius. She she is. I do think there's also something to be said for the fact that Pride and Prejudice is her most popular novel, right? And I think it's the one that most clearly maps onto a modern day romance novel. So we're still really latching onto that and, and going back to that because it is, it's like the best kind of romance novel. That's what you want. And we literally still quote her all the time to each other all the time in casual conversation. People quote Austin and her love declarations. Like she is one of, if not the most influential author um, for many people, I think. I mean, Clueless is another thing that I will often bring up in, in this kind of conversation because it's like another amazing timeless story adapted you know of course inspired by emma but it's taken on its own life and it has its own like i'm certainly a member of the cult following of clueless it's such an old story and it's still so modern and so engrossing when it's told from the perspective of like a spoiled teen in like beverly hill it just works it, it works wherever you put it it's just a great story great characters honestly only other Shakespeare right like the only other person I I think of who comes to my immediate mind is Shakespeare with that kind of cult of, of popularity yeah and that level of adaptation in particular which I think if you're being adapted you are speaking to creative people creative people are responding to your work and wanting to re to be a part of it in in some way I mean Emma Thompson has done both right a lot of the Brits have done both because they know. <laughs> I really am racking my brain think, trying to think of someone who is in that same, the top of the pyramid like that. I mean, in terms of things being adapted over and over again, it's really, you know, Shakespeare, Austin, and even somebody like Charlotte Bronte with Jane Eyre, which has obviously been adapted many times. I mean, maybe somebody has done it, but I think it's harder to do like a modern clueless spin on that unless you change a lot of things from the book you know you're gonna have to make some significant changes <gasps> to update Jane Eyre yeah you're really gonna have to change some things versus with Pride and Prejudice where it just like slap it anywhere any time period oh Rachel Hawkins wrote a modern Jane Eyre it's called The Woman Upstairs yeah it's a thriller right it's a thriller it's not a romance yeah I could totally see it working in that it's setting. a thriller yeah. but it's a really fun take modern just something fun to wrap things up is there an austin character you would love to give romantic advice to or one that you would love to get some advice from i have a huge soft spot and like if i was to ever like which i wouldn't ever do this but have write a continuation of austin or like anything to do with austin i love georgiana oh yeah i have a real soft spot for her i have this fantasy that she like goes off and like has a has her happy ending i would like to to give her some advice remind her of her worth yeah, yeah. i also oh, i just i love a good like protective brother that's a good trope yeah going along with why austin retellings and continuations and adaptations are so popular is because there are so many of these like side characters that we're still interested in there's characters that you're like, oh, I could see some kind of arc for them 10 years hence, you know, like a Lydia Bennett. There's all those kinds of characters that we're so interested in. I love a world. 
And that's Austen just builds this world. And I think a lot of very popular contemporary romance novelists also build these worlds that you just like get to live in. Like one of my favorite, favorite series of all times, I love Beverly Jenkins historicals, but she has a modern series that's called the Blessing series. I don't want to give it away, but it's, I don't think it gives it away. It's about a, someone who wins a lottery and then like buys a town. Oh, I love that. Already loving these vibes. Okay, I'm, I'm sold. <laughs> and it's like all the people in this town. And it is this work. I think it's 10, 15, so many of these books. And I could read them forever. I love <laughs> this world. I love every character. I want to walk down the streets. It's Austin-esque to me in that way of populating your world with all these characters who you maybe only see for a minute, but then just stick in your mind. And you're like, when will they get their book? When will they get their happy ending? I mean, that's such a popular thing in historical romance, right? You get the entire series about every single sibling in the family. And I'm not just talking about Bridgerton. That is that is a tried and true. I love the big families. I love uh, like Tessa Dare's Spinster Cove. Well, that one's extra fun, too, because lady scientists Whenever I read a book and there is a lady fossilist, I scream. I get way too excited. I lose my mind. Yes, we are the same person. A lady fossil person is the pinnacle for nothing. Nothing beats that. When I read A Week to Be Wicked, I think I read it and then I started all over. I just went back to the first page. Um, of course, it's also Tessa Dare. So like her, just her comedy you know, naming the fossil and just trying to like cart it to the destination. It's so good. Everything about it's so good. It's road trip romance. It's everything you ever wanted. There is something so real about that because she, Tessa, like does so much work in building this world that is so accurate in so many ways that you then let her do whatever she wants in it because you you trust that it's like a well-built world. It's like an homage to Mary Anning, to this real, or or to any of the female, the many female paleontologists in the 19th century. And she just wrote this like love letter to them. And Mary Anning didn't have a happy ending. So I love that Tessa gave her a happy ending. That's what you get in your romance books. Right. I love that. Yes. It's very soothing, especially right now, where you feel like so much is out of control in the world at least to know that the couple will end up together. It's like one tiny right in the sea of wrongs. I mean, I think that's something that appeals about the genre too. That's like, you know that there's going to be ups and downs. You know you're going to have to go through some stuff, but you know that the destination will be worth it. And the stuff that you went through, it is worth it. It's like, it reveals something about the characters. Like, I, I think Austin in particular, like just has this amazing way of this moment of reckoning a character has to explain why they've been acting the way they've been acting the entire book. And 99% of the time it's because they're in love. See, that's, that to me is that's the Wentworth letter where it's just like, oh, everything's okay again in the world. Absolutely. I love an explainer letter. Love it. Yeah, I just don't think Darcy and Lizzie's ending is not as satisfying without that first proposal that goes right. completely off the rails. Absolutely. Because they, they both earn it in the end especially him you like really want to see him have to work for her with something like an Anne and a Wentworth and persuasion it's it's the same thing right it's them finally getting together after so many years well first of all there wouldn't Seven be no years. book if they would have gotten together at the very beginning <laughs> there, there just wouldn't be a book right <laughs> but yeah it's, it's like knowing their history is part of what makes it so satisfying so satisfying some people 
will literally say that. Like, why do I, why would I read this book? Like, why wouldn't they just have had the conversation seven years ago? And then why do we have to, to do this? And I, that's like my dad. He's like, I don't understand these people because I'm like, don't you enjoy just a little bit of exquisite pain? Right. Come on. It just, you need that. I love it. Give me all the pining. Pile it on there for me, please. Because then when you do get that, you know, the letter or the equivalent, you know, once you get to the denouement, then you're like, it has been so worth it. I think the other one for me, and it's it's not Regency, but North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell is the same one where it's like, to see what Thornton goes through is like, that's why at the end when, when he's like, they finally get their stuff together and they're able to really have a conversation for the first time. And it's just like, it doesn't have the payoff if you don't go through the agony with Thornton, with Margaret's own remorse about what happened. You know, it's just North and South is just, ugh. And a book with essences of Pride and Prejudice to it. Oh, so. absolutely. It's totally a retelling of Pride and Prejudice. I think there is something like so when we say happy ending, we like push the two words together and it becomes kind of this like meaningless phrase. But like both words are really important because it it is the ending. (laughs) People often like write off romance as like light and fluffy and like nothing happens. But it's like, well, they're they have to get to the ending. So sometimes it's light and fluffy and like hijinks ensue. And sometimes it's really freaking dark and hard and a struggle to get to the happy ending. But the ending, it comes after (laughs) everything. You have to go through something. Well, B, can you tell our listeners where they can find you online, find your book, all that good stuff? I'm not on Twitter right now, but I'm on Instagram at B Koch. And I'm always on the Rip Bodice social pages. So we're at the Rip Bodice everywhere. We are on TikTok. And my book you can find at most independent bookstores. You can also find it on Amazon. If you order from the Rip Bodice, I will sign it for you. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this discussion. We had so much fun. thank Thank you. This was so fun. You can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com, and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. And stay tuned for next episode in which we'll be talking about Blaze Castle. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.